as we prepare to read our scripture, it is from Matthew 19, 1 through 10. And if you uh, want to use a pew Bible, it's found on page 1029. Or for those of you who uh, have those electronic devices, uh, I don't think you need a page number. You just plug in that you want to go to Matthew 19, chapter, and we'll be reading verse 1 through 10. While you're doing that, I just want to reiterate again one more time that if you're a visitor, we have some information packets back in the foyer, and they're stuck down in a free coffee mug. So if you're a first-timer, get you one of those coffee mugs and a little information pack about our church, and don't forget to fill out one of those connect cards and leave it in the offering plate. All right, Matthew 19, 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Welcome back to Real Talk about relationships, a series that we've been going through the last few weeks where we're trying to look and just have some real talk about how would Jesus do relationships? How can we get better at relationships and doing them Jesus' way? And so we've so far we've looked at friendships, how to do friendships Jesus' way. We've looked at dating and we've looked at marriage. And today is a little bit different because it's not so much a relationship but a broken one that we look at in divorce. And you may notice that there's not a sermon note card like we have every other week, but I just wasn't really sure what to put on there for you (laughs) this week. It's just a different sort of message. And uh, obviously a, a difficult subject for our day and time where, I mean, divorce rates are a little bit better in the church than they are in the world, but maybe not as much as we'd like to hope and think that they would be. It's something that has touched all of our lives, directly or indirectly. And it's something that, quite frankly, the church is confused about on the whole. I'm not saying you're confused about it, but the church as a whole has been confused about it. What do we do with this? Is it a sin or is it not a sin? Can you remarry afterwards or can you not remarry afterwards? What do we do in the aftermath? How do we treat people who have been divorced as the church? There's a lot of confusion. A lot of churches handle it different ways. A lot of Christians view it different ways. And so today we're going to take on the daunting task 
of looking at what Jesus said and trying to apply it to our world today and, and to the circumstances of our culture today and figure out what does it mean for us? What would Jesus say specifically to us about our context and our culture and our situation when it comes to this topic of divorce? Because it is such a difficult subject and because I don't profess to be an all-knowing pastor who is ultimately wise in the all things of Jesus, that what he intended and what he would have said to us today, I think it would be wise for us to spend a moment praying before we launch into this one. So let's do that now. God... Certainly every week we need you here, we invite you here, we expect and hope that you'll meet us here and that your Holy Spirit will speak to us through your word. And today is, that is certainly the case. And so I ask Holy Spirit that you would make the teachings of Jesus on this subject clear to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've talked about how You know, Jesus taught us and modeled to us that the people of the kingdom should do relationships, should regard relationships as a means to profit others. Whereas this world views and does and regards relationships as a means to profit themselves. We've looked at that, those principles, every week of this series so far. And when we look at something like Divorce. we certainly see that this is true. That the people of this world do indeed regard relationships as a means to profit themselves. And I just want to give you an example of that today. Her name is Callie Hulk. I'm not trying to uh, just pin her to the wall today, even though we pinned her picture to the wall. Uh, but she kind of put herself out there in the sense of, in the way that a lot of bloggers do, and they blog about what they're going through and what they experience and what they feel like other people should do in their lives as well. And so, when you put yourself out there, you put yourself out there. And this is an article that Callie wrote, titled "Finding the Courage to Live Mindfully." I'm just going to read you some excerpts from it. Have you ever started driving down a road you knew in acute detail and for whatever reason you zoned out at the wheel only to snap out of it, look around, and realize you have no memory of how you got that much further down the road? She writes, I had that experience earlier this year. Only the road was my life and the car was a relationship that I no longer recognized. The feeling of waking up looking around and thinking, how am I already so far from where I wanted to end up is a devastating one, especially when you feel trapped by what you perceive as an irreversible mistake. I realized this is my life and I am not living it how I want, and then I started furiously clawing my way out of the box that I had built for myself. When I first realized that I wanted out of my marriage, I thought I would drown in the waves of shame, guilt, sadness, anger, and panic that slammed into me. I could not get divorced. It wasn't an option. How could I cause so much suffering and pain in this person that I cared deeply for, that I loved, in a way that was still special and important, but who I could not spend the rest of my life with? Wasn't sacrificing my own happiness so as not to disrupt the life of someone else only fair as punishment for making this momentous mistake in the first place? What would my family think? 
How badly would I disappoint them? How much would I hurt them? What would his family think? What awful, horrible things would they say about him? What a monstrous person I was. I was paralyzed by fear, self-loathing, and guilt. Until a close friend of mine told me that if I was unhappy, then something needed to change. And if failing to make mindful, intentional decisions led me to this point, it was time to stop making that mistake. It was time to be honest about how I felt, what I needed, and where my life would go. I needed to quit letting external factors dictate my actions. I needed to make the decision that was right for me. Which I just can't help but stop for a second and say, what are those external factors? They're people. kind of just chilling a little bit. Our experiences of this existence are valuable beyond words and we shouldn't limit our steps to the path that works for other people but not for ourselves. Guilt and shame will choke you to death if you let them but I did know I did not want to live with the knowledge that I turned away from what was right for me or stayed in a place where I felt unhappy, unfulfilled and lacking direction and purpose because I was scared. Chances are that all of us in this room can identify on some level with the feelings of this woman. Because we've felt it at some point, or someone we know has felt it at some point. We've heard that line of thinking before, and it's, it sounds like wisdom. I mean, who would wish a life of misery on anyone? Julie and I have a friend who could have written this article. And his wife is still trying to put the pieces together of why her husband decided to reorganize his life without her. Left her picking up the pieces. Her, their families, their friends, their church is still trying to put all the pieces together. hard to make sense of. Now if you find yourself here today and you say, okay, but that's not me, that's not my situation, that's not where I'm at in life, what does divorce have to do with me, with my life, how does this, why am I here today? Like I mentioned earlier, divorce in this society has affected everybody, directly or indirectly. Whatever stage you find yourself at in life, or however committed you are to your marriage, or however past your past divorce you may be. The words and the teaching of Jesus on this subject, I believe, have something for all of us. And at the end of this message, I'll be addressing about seven different groups of people, and I'm pretty sure that all of us will fall into one or more of those categories. And so, hang in there with me. And in fact, let's really try and focus our brains today, because this is going to be some tough stuff to wrap our minds around as we begin to look at what Jesus said and taught about this because, you know, at, at first glance, what he said it seems pretty plain. I mean, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Boom. I tell you, if anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, he commits adultery. Boom. End of sermon. We're done. <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty black and white, right? But see, what we do with 
passages of Scripture so often when we study them is we, we take the parts that sound crystal clear to us and we run with them. And all the parts around it that weren't crystal clear to us, we just ignore because we don't get it. And so we just take the parts that we get. And sometimes what we do when we do that is, is we lose the context into which Jesus spoke. And as we're going to see, Jesus was responding to a very specific question, a very specific issue in his day. And it still very much applies to us today. But it may not be exactly what we thought he was saying. We start off with being told this, that some Pharisees came to test Jesus. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now the first thing we need to know is that if the, when the Pharisees came to test you, this was not like a test at school. Right. I mean, these guys, they were teachers, a lot of them, but, but this, when they came to test Jesus, this was not like your history pop quiz. Unless you had a teacher or professor that was a vindictive jerk and wanted to shame you and publicly humiliate you in front of your entire class, entire campus, and entire nation. If you had that experience, you might identify with Jesus more than I thought. But that's the situation. These guys are after Jesus. They want to discredit him. They want to drive a wedge between him and the people that are following him because he threatens them and their power over the people. He keeps teaching this other stuff than, than other than what they approve. It's not on their approved curriculum list. All right? And not only that, he keeps pointing out to people ways that they are self-righteous and hypocritical. And they're losing their power, their prestige with the people. And so something has to be done about this Jesus. So you can rest assured that when the Pharisees come to test Jesus, this is not an innocent question about divorce. This is not them saying, Jesus, we're really confused about the issue of divorce and we'd like you to bring some clarity to the subject for us so we know how to live our lives correctly. Alright? This is a carefully crafted question It shows us that this was probably a controversial topic in Jesus' day. And I believe that the Pharisees had made an educated guess about what Jesus' answer would be to this. And they knew it wouldn't be very popular. And they hoped to drive a wedge between Jesus and his followers. And to some degree, it may have worked, as we'll see. An educated guess. Why do I say that? Why do I say that they would have made an educated guess that that Jesus' response to this question would not have been popular? I say that because of the kind of culture that they lived in and the way that Jesus behaved inside that culture, especially with regards to women's rights and women in general. This was a... I want you... It's hard for us to wrap our minds around what it was like between men and women in that day. So this is the best shot I've got at giving you an example is, do you remember when after 9-11 the U.S. troops went into Afghanistan and began driving the Taliban out of their strongholds? And news stories started coming out about the women of Afghanistan. Do you remember that? It was riveting news for Americans because 
it was just mind-blowing and eye-opening for us to consider that women were still treated that way in the 21st century anywhere on this planet. Well, the way that conservative Middle Easterners treat women now is very much similar to the way the Middle East has always treated women for all of time, thousands of years. I'm not trying to draw a parallel between Jesus' peers and the Taliban. (laughs) Please don't mishear me on that. But I am saying that what conservative Middle Easterners, how they view women is very much unchanged from the way that Middle Eastern cultures in general have treated women through the centuries and millenniums. And so the culture that Jesus lived in would be the way that they dealt with women was more similar to that than to our culture. So consider what the Pharisees had witnessed about Jesus in that culture. How do you think it would go over if you walked into a conservative Middle Eastern village and showed kindness to a prostitute and let her touch you? How do you think it would go for you if you walked into a conservative Middle Eastern village today and struck up a conversation with an infidel woman at a well? How do you think it would go for you if you came to the defense of a woman caught red-handed in adultery? And so these Pharisees had been watching Jesus, and I believe they'd made an educated guess about where he would stand on divorce, and that it wouldn't be very popular, and they wanted to pull it out of him publicly. Because in this day, it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. This was the popular teaching of the day. There was, I read from a scholar today, this week as I prepared for this, that there was actually one teacher, a very popular teacher in that day, that literally went so far as to say, if you're married and you find someone prettier, you can set your wife aside, divorce her, and marry the prettier girl. This was the mindset. The marriage was a man's privilege and right in this day. And it was his privilege to be pleased by his marriage or to set it aside and find one that would please him. So I believe that the Pharisees knew what they were doing when they asked this question. And that context puts this question, it frames it in a way that we don't usually frame it. Because we treat Jesus' teaching here as just a neutral teaching on the general subject of divorce. When in fact he was specifically answering a situation he was dealing with, that he was confronted with, a crooked bunch of people trying to catch him in a corner on this issue. And he doesn't back down. He says, Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator, he goes all the way back to the beginning, to the way that God had intended things to be from the start, The Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And you can see the the Pharisees, yeah, we got him, we got him. We've got this liberal feminist where we want him. So they come back with a left hook that is Moses. All right, the Pharisees always go into Moses because Moses was the one that gave them the law on which they built all their other rules and laws. 
Moses is on which you know, everything in their existence as Pharisees hung and as leaders. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why, why Jesus, if, if divorce is so bad and all that, why didn't Moses tell us we could do it? Jesus said, Well, Moses let you divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. That's not the way God had it planned. That's not his plan from the beginning. This is a concession because you had messed up marriage and relationships so bad there had to be some kind of legal way to deal with it. So he gave you divorce. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Sounds pretty straightforward still, right? What's to explain? Divorce is a big no-no. If you marry someone else afterwards, then it's adultery unless there was something, some kind of hanky-panky on the side going on. Hmm. Well, all that said, and if you don't think this was shocking... If you still don't believe me, just look at what Jesus' own disciples said. These are young men, many of them either freshly married or not married. And they say to Jesus, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Like, are you kidding me, Jesus? You just took out everything good about marriage. I mean, we've had it made, all right? I mean, just try to put yourself in their shoes for a moment. For generations, the men of their family, marriage has been their right, their privilege. Marriage was designed for their pleasure. That's just the way it was. No one had ever questioned it. And here's Jesus saying, you can't do it. And they're saying, I can't divorce her? I mean, what if she gets ugly? I mean, I'm marrying a virgin here. What if there's just no chemistry? What if she's, I mean, you know, what if she turns into a nagging woman and I just need to get, it's just constant. And I mean, are you telling me I'm stuck with that? And Jesus is probably thinking, she, they've been stuck with you men for generations. Boo-hoo. What's funny, right after the disciples say that, Jesus says this really strange thing about eunuchs that no one seems to know what to, how to make heads or tails of it, but it almost seems like Jesus is saying, well, guys, if you don't think, you know, I, I, it is, it's tough. If you don't think you can handle it, you may just have to be eunuchs. And probably this is exactly what the Pharisees had hoped would happen that his own disciples would start questioning, wait a second, what is this guy teaching? Women are probably loving this about now, right? Second week in a row that the men are getting the short end of the stick here. But remember that we don't live in Jesus' time anymore. This is 2,000 years later. And that article we read, uh, that I read from just a few minutes ago, sounded very much like these guys, but it was written by a woman. She wasn't finding happiness, pleasure anymore in that marriage. She wasn't going to sacrifice her happiness 
We live in a day and time where men and women have equal rights on divorce. Either of them can call it quits for whatever reason. It's certainly not skewed in favor of the men anymore. In fact, you might say that in some ways the courts favor women when it comes to divorce cases. But either way you look at it, pretty easy for everybody to call it quits when it's not working out for them anymore. And today, Jesus' teaching would certainly apply to both men and women. And we might, you know, sum it up this way. That legal adultery is still adultery. See, what, the, what they were doing, what those guys were doing back then, is they had, they had worked it out. Okay, if you were a good man, you found someone better, you wouldn't start sleeping with them now. You'd wait. You'd go through the process. You'd divorce your wife, get free of those entanglements, and then you can get together with the woman that you want to be with. And it's all good. It's all legal. You were separated from your spouse at that time, so it's not adultery. And Jesus said, you can dress it up however you want. But it's still adultery. Whether you do it legally or not. So I think that in our day and time, that would still apply, wouldn't it? I mean, if you find somebody better, or you decide you want to pursue your... There's some greener grass somewhere on the other side. You're no longer happy with where you're at, and you decide to go out and do it the right way. Set them aside first. Get that done first. And that there is no right way to cheat on your spouse. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. And this is the specific question that he's dealing with when he talks about this. Because see... I feel like sometimes that we've gotten legalistic about what Jesus says about divorce. And we've said, okay, he said divorce is wrong, always, period, end of story. And if you remarry after your divorce, then you're an adulterer, period, end of story. No commentary on the subject, nothing more to be said. But what we read today, I, I hope that you're beginning to see this is a specific answer to a specific question that was expressed to Jesus. And so it's kind of like this. The situation he was dealing with is kind of like this. Okay, you know that situation that doubtless you've heard of at least where someone leaves their spouse and within just seems like weeks they're shacked up with somebody else, Right? Or they're dating someone else. And before you know it, they've remarried again. And everyone, everyone knows, don't they? Everyone knows what's going on there. And you're not, you're not fooling anybody. Everybody knows that you were looking for something better. I mean, you know. You called it quits. And you got right in another relationship. Yeah. But... Say it's that same person, except add to the equation that their spouse cheated on them while they were married. And so divorce was filed. And then they met somebody else and they went on and got married. You'd have a completely different attitude towards that person, wouldn't you? I mean, you might still be kind of afraid for them that they're, you know, on the rebound or something like that. You know, we might fear, but we wouldn't have that same accusatory feeling towards them that we'd have if their spouse hadn't. It had been faithful, right? 
And this is what Jesus is, is specifically answering, that unless there's been some sexual immorality on the part of your other spouse, if you leave them to go shack up with someone else, then you're still committing adultery even if you do it legally. This is the specific situation that Jesus was speaking into. So is sexual immorality the only way to break the covenant of marriage? Is that the only case in which someone could remarry and not be committing adultery? I don't think that was the point. Since Jesus was answering this specific question. Think about how God works with us. You know, because he oftentimes compares his relationship to humanity as like a bride and groom marriage relationship, right? And what does God do when we push back on it, when we reject him to chase after other things? He turns us over to it, right? He lets us go. Time and again throughout scripture, he lets us go. Have it your way. I would think that the same principle that he uses in his relationship with humanity that he compares to a marriage probably works in the marriage, in our marriages as well. That when your spouse truly rejects you and spurns you, you let them go. I know of a young woman who met a troubled young man when she was in high school and he started coming to church with her and changed his life. And that they got married after high school. They were high school sweethearts and got married. The family loved him. It was a really neat story. Right after they got married and started living together, he was no longer able to hide his drug abuse from her anymore. She was shocked. She gave him, I think, like six months or something to get clean. To choose her over drugs. And he didn't do it. So she filed for divorce. I don't know if she ever ended up remarrying or not, but if she had, would you hold it against her? Do you think Jesus would hold it against her? There's no sexual immorality that we know of. But do you see the spirit of what Jesus is saying? Surely, there are more ways to reject a marriage, and for that matter, more ways to commit adultery than just sexual immorality. But of course, when you leave the black and white, things start getting gray. And so, it is a dangerous road to travel down because then you can start rationalizing. We all are good at that, aren't we? And we can start saying, well, you know, he cheated on me with his hunting or she cheated on me with her work. And maybe in some extreme cases, something like that would be a valid problem. But we have to be careful we start going down this path that we don't start making excuses for just pursuing our own happiness. When's it permitted to move on? This is 
admittedly my opinion based on what I can gather of what the spirit of what Jesus was trying to communicate here into this specific situation. See, when you take something that's so specifically spoken into a very specific situation and then you want to apply it to a broader situation. And, you know, Jesus is speaking into a situation where people are divorcing their spouses. Men, specifically, are divorcing their wives to go chase after a prettier, younger woman. And Jesus specifically tells them, unless she cheated on you first, you're just committing adultery and you're wrapping it up in legal trappings. If you want to take that principle that he spoke into that specific situation and then apply it across the board to divorce, then you're going to have to back that principle up to be a broader principle than the specific one for that specific situation. You're going to have to say, how does, what's the spirit of what Jesus is speaking into this, how does that apply in other divorce situations? And we just have to do the best we can and pray that we get it right and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in that. And that's what I've done this week. And I would just, this would be my best educated guess on the subject is that you'd be permitted to move on when your spouse truly breaks the covenant. But you'd better be sure that you've searched your heart and you've allowed God to search your heart and check your motives and make sure you're not telling yourself what you want to hear. Because marriages weren't designed to be broken. What do we make of all this? How do we reconcile Jesus' relationship principle that people of the kingdom should do relationships in a way that benefit others? How do we reconcile that with this thing, divorce? And in a way, I'd say we can't. Because divorce isn't even really a relationship. It's a broken one that's already not as God had willed it ultimately to be, to look like, how he meant marriage to work. That doesn't mean there's no application here, and so that's, we're just going to take kind of one group of people at a time, and hopefully some of this hits you somewhere and applies to you and your life. For the couple, first of all, who's having marriage trouble, and maybe... Divorce seems like a possibility down the road. I just want to challenge you to try with all your might to start doing your marriage, Jesus, God's way. We talked last week about how the I in marriage is silent, how we should put our spouse before and their what would benefit them before what would benefit us. And that's a hard thing to just start doing when you're in the middle of a toxic relationship. So depending on where you are on the spectrum of unhealthy, you may need more help than just, hey, start applying this principle, go for it. You may need someone to come alongside you and help with that. Guys in particular, oftentimes are are hesitant, it seems to me, to, to try the counseling thing. It's just something not manly about it. It's like admitting weakness or something like that, you know. But men, if you find yourself in this situation, be brave enough, be man enough to do whatever it takes to try and save that marriage because the way God intended marriage to work doesn't look like divorce. So seek out help. 
come talk to me and if I think you're too messed up for me to fix I can pass you to somebody else <laughs> for the couple experiencing divorce you know like there's no turning back at this point the deal's done or it's being done there's two ways through any conflict two ways to treat someone through a conflict it applies beyond divorce doesn't it there's one way that's full of ugliness and spite and vindictiveness and there's one way that's full of grace and love and humility and that second way doesn't mean that you're a pushover what it means is you treat people even that person where things are so toxic right now with manners and respect and in that small way or maybe it seems like a really big way you are living out Jesus relationship principle the best you can in a broken situation for the Christian who believes that divorce is fine because there's a lot of us that believe divorce is fine it's just common everyday experience in our nation, in our world. Get with the times, pastor. It's just how it is. I just beg to differ. I don't see anything in God's word that says it's fine. Or that it's good. Or that it's somehow the best option because here's the deal not only does divorce leave brokenness and pain in your family and amongst your friends on a, on a larger scale God knows the creator of this world knows that things like divorce erode the entire fabric of a nation I mean you look at the problems that are magnifying in our nation right now after generations of broken families as that plays and multiplies itself out over the course of time where that takes us what is it doing what are the effects and you can see them written all over the news I think one of the most obvious places we see it is with our kids and in our schools and oh man, the country is scratching its head over what are we going to do with our education system. And so they up the testing and they up the pressure on the already pressured teachers and they put more funding, more millions of dollars, more technology. They take away recess, add more math and science, unify standards. But no one is talking about the family. Except the teachers. Who say, I can't get my kids to behave in class. I got no support from home. My kids can't read. How am I supposed to teach them? Their parents never read with them at home. The brokenness of our families over generations. Is leaving our schools in shambles. And that's just the beginning of the story. God doesn't invent these rules about things and His way of things just for His good humor. But because He knows what's best for humanity and what works best. 
So to say, to say and decide that divorce is fine because it's commonplace is a mistake, to say the least. It's anything but fine. And pursuing one's own happiness at the expense of all the relationships around you has nothing to do with doing relationships Jesus' way. There's another kind of Christian too, though. The ones that label the divorcees as adulterers, sinners. And this happens too, and we see it in Christian families. Where the one who gets divorced is treated with shame and guilt. Labeled an adulterer. I think probably many times, out of context, many times the label is thrown out there even though you're not privy to all the details. You don't know what exactly did go on. And yet you feel it's your place to put them in their place. Someday it may be your place to speak truth into someone's life. When you do so, I hope that you'll do it in a loving spirit, in a gentle spirit, but boldly. They may still not like it, but the way the church has turned a cold shoulder in many cases, or worse, toward people who are going through divorce in situations that they weren't privy to all the details, has caused a lot of people to turn their backs on the church as well. And you may need forgiveness for that. For the person who has been rejected by their spouse, whatever the way was, they woke up one morning like Callie Hawk and said, how did I get here? This isn't what I wanted. And they start reorganizing their life and there's nothing you can do about it except watch your life fall apart. Maybe that's not your exact story. Maybe your spouse cheated on you. Maybe your spouse abused you. Maybe your, I don't know, your story. But if such is the case, and it's truly not just a case of you know, trying to rationalize your way to a better happiness in some greener grass somewhere. If, it, if you were rejected by someone who broke the covenant with you, you need to know you're not guilty. You may be guilty of some things. We're all guilty of something. But you don't need to wear a black mark on your life because someone divorced you. And now you have that stigma attached to you wherever you go and you feel like how can I even walk into a church building they all see me as that divorced person divorce is a bad word in a lot of churches and so a lot of people live their whole post-divorce lives under the weight of guilt and shame that was not theirs to bear if that's you today I pray that a burden will be taken off of you and that people of the church will come around you and encourage you and love you through what is a difficult and terrible time 
like I said, we've been watching our friend go through this. I'm thankful that she has a church around her that cares and loves her. Maybe you're the person that did the rejecting. Maybe you were the one that decided to seek your happiness elsewhere. Legal divorce, legal adultery is still adultery. But if that's you today, and you'd be willing to confess and admit, that just means admit, confess sounds harsh sometimes, but just to admit you're out of line, to renounce that way of thinking, that way of living, there's forgiveness at the cross. There's forgiveness at the cross for even the ugliest case of divorce. But beware of getting right with God on something. Because a lot of times he asks you to go and make it right with other people. I'm not saying that it necessarily means that you'll be reconciling with your former spouse. They may have moved on. I don't know your situation. But getting right with God often leads you down a road that where he wants you to get right with other people in some way, shape, or form. Because the two are not exclusive. The way we do relationships with others and the way we do relationships with God, they're connected somehow. And lastly, for the person not yet married, marriage is not for everyone. Like Jesus said, if you can't handle it, you may just need to be a eunuch. (laughs) When you play with marriage, you're playing for keeps. The command, you know, is simple for someone married. It's, it's simple. It's love your spouse like Christ loves you. Serve them like that. That's simple, but it's not easy, is it? So make sure you're ready to do that before you say, I do. Imagine a world, church, where the divorce rate in our churches was so drastically different from the world's that the people dealing with brokenness in their marriages start turning to us in droves. What do we do here? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of marriage, for recognizing a man's need for a woman and a woman's need for a man. God, we confess that too often we've allowed divorce to make a wreckage of our families just like our world does. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us set a new trend in this church to put on a clinic of how marriage is supposed to work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.